Hello, I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening and also to explain why you might hear ads like this before, during, or even after an episode. We're a small but mighty team here at Realm, and to help fund our shows, we promote products or services that we think you'd enjoy from a variety of sponsors. If any of our ads interest you, one of the best ways to support us is by visiting the link or using the promo code in the ad. It's pretty much a win-win since you can get some great deals and we can keep making awesome shows like this one. You can also visit realm.fm slash partners for more information about our sponsors and how to access the different promotions. Thanks again for joining us in our corner of the universe. Listen away. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The Shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. We're back with another episode of Stories to Keep You Up at Night, your 24-7 home for dark, fantastic fiction. I'm your host, Marco Palmieri, and with me is my wonderful co-host, Christina Teleska. Hi, Marco. Thank you for having me back. So, Christina, what do you think of alt-history stories and, uh, tangentially, historical stories that feature a supernatural element? I love alt-history stories. Um particularly if they're the supernatural, because usually that's time travel, (laughs) which is my favorite. Um, Or it's that idea that you can just make one different thing happen and the whole course of history is changed. It's not something that was fated. It's not something that was always supposed to happen. It was all chance. Right. It's like the butterfly effect, right? A butterfly flaps its wings, and before you know it, you've got a hurricane in another part of the world. Exactly. Um, yeah, I, I'm totally with you. I really like alt history stories as well. They're thought provoking. They, you know, depending on the imagination of the writer, they can extrapolate events really clever and interesting ways. But sometimes they don't need to. Sometimes they can just make, you know, one tiny change and you can imagine the possibility. Yes. And how foreshadowing can happen with just the time, because we already know it, because it's history with the tiniest detail, a date, a city, a number as a as an as a person who's listening, you're like, oh, I'm totally with you. So why don't you just queue up this episode story and we'll get right to it. OK, it's April 1968 in Memphis, Tennessee. We peek into the life of 13-year-old Shayna, who receives a seemingly benign yet mysterious gift from a family member across the ocean. My friends, this is Thursday Night Shift, written by Tanana Reeve Dew and narrated by Keeler Lee. (laughs) 
April 1968. For as long as she could remember, Shana had been teaching herself to be content in the dark. She discovered her gift for night sight during frequent trips to the bathroom that dogged her even now that she was 13 and no longer wet her bed. She was careful not to wake her younger sister, Missy, since their bedroom was directly beside their parents. And nobody would have a good morning if daddy didn't get his sleep. Shayna had taught herself to move mouse-like through the dark room when she needed to climb in and out of her bed, guided only by the faint blue-white glow of the moonlight through her window. Shayna's phantom vision had become so sharp over time that she could swear she saw better with her eyes closed, relying on other senses rather than fighting the dark. The rounded curve of her mattress, her globe-shaped bedpost, the crumpled sheets, all seemed in perfect view when she touched them. That was one more odd thing about herself she could never explain to anyone, not even Missy. No one can see with their eyes closed, Missy would say. But Shayna would almost swear on a Bible she could. Even before the box arrived, Shayna had begun to notice and wonder about small ways she no longer felt quite like herself in a manner she could not explain. Or, to put it better, she didn't feel quite like a regular human being. Maybe she never had, as if she had accidentally found herself in a world where brown skin and white skin held such unusual importance, and it was considered abnormal to see in the dark. So, the box. From the sight of it, the package from Aunt Priscilla might have been from the president of Molly himself. Slightly bigger than a shoebox, it arrived in the mail after school Wednesday, decorated with colorful international stickers and official red and blue stripes. République du Mali, the stamp said. It bore the image of an odd black beetle with spiny legs. Mama had set it down on the table before she called to her, as if to give her privacy with it. The package was inscribed to Shayna alone. Her aunt always included her middle name to remind her of her namesake. Miss Shayna Priscilla Jackson, 500 Lauderdale Street, Memphis, Tennessee, 38126. Two smaller boxes lay inside the first box, an immediate disappointment as Shayna's imagination shrank to scale. Was it jewelry? A lion's tooth? The final box, padded on all sides, was burnished metal. The latch clicked open without a key. A typed letter lay neatly folded into a thick square. When Shayna lifted the letter, she found the glistening black stone beneath, an exact fit in the palm of her hand. Maybe the box had been sitting out in the sun. The stone was warm. Sweet Shayna, I thought of you when I came across this lovely stone. I know you have loved exotic rocks since you were a baby. I was traveling with friends in the Dogon region. It's of fantastic historical importance, so you'll have to work on your French and come with me one day. The Dogon culture is quite astronomically advanced here, you know, which your American teachers will never tell you. It's a shame how they're cutting down the forests, but I found this stone near an excavation site, and I've never seen one quite like it. The geology grad students from university were very jealous of me and frantic to have it, but I hid it to send to you. If you ever tire of this, promise me you'll give it back to me when you come visit. Otherwise, 
keep it as my gift. And remember, you come from great people who used their own science to navigate the stars. Aunt Priscilla always wrote as if Shana's future relied on knowing history from a continent across the ocean. And what did she mean by navigate the stars? Surely Aunt Priscilla didn't think Africans were exploring space like John Glenn had orbited the Earth. The space flights were Shana's most fixed memories. And in some ways, she felt as if she were watching the rocket's violent departure from the Earth's atmosphere all the time in her mind. Outer space was far from Memphis, far from a country that did not love her, unbound by gravity. Perfect. Shayna didn't often get excited about presents, but she was so happy with her mysterious new stone that she slept with it wrapped in the palm of her hand. She was sure she saw the stone's luxuriant velvet glow, even with her eyes closed. By morning, her palm was empty. An oval-shaped shadow remained, faintly painting her palm's crevices. She patted her mattress for the stone and finally realized it was nestled in her armpit, as smooth as her own skin. To yank it free, she tugged harder than she thought she should have to. Removing it stung a bit, so she immediately slid it back. What's that? Missy said, bounding to the foot of Shayna's bed. As Shayna stared at her sister's face, upturned to hers, she saw her anew, eyes starving for adventure, for relief from the constant hum about the marches and the beatings and how Larry Payne got shot. The night before, Missy had asked her, how come they hate us so much? And Shayna couldn't find an answer. And she'd said Missy should ask Mama. Shayna wanted to tell Missy about the stone and the stain on her palm. As a big sister, felt a duty to tell her. But she could not make herself say it. The words stayed coiled in her throat. Come on, what is it? Missy said, insistent. Get off my bed, Shayna said, more angrily than she'd meant to. Leave me alone. Why are you always bothering me? She spoke all of the words she knew Missy hated the most. But Missy didn't storm with the anger Shayna expected. Instead, tears came to Missy's eyes and her bottom lip shook. Why are you being so mean? She said and walked out of the room. Shayna thought she heard her sob and her throat hurt. She was near sobbing too, but not a bit of that mattered. Shayna swallowed her sob and forgot it. The stone had lost some of its coloring, so it seemed lighter than it had been when she went to sleep. It bled, she thought. That was when it started, her ability to understand. Shayna instantly knew that she must keep the stone with her at all times and safeguard it while she slept. She must not let anyone else see it. Mama had barely given it a glance. Papa would never lay eyes on it. How had Aunt Priscilla negotiated her way to it? Hidden it? It was remarkable. And she'd slept with it in her hand. Shayna knew she could never be that foolish again. Her armpit was the perfect place to carry the stone, as if the crevice of warm skin were designed for the task. The long sleeves on her dress obscured the stone's bulk, and it felt so natural that Shayna had to pat the spot to remember it was there. 
Shayna sat with it under her arm at breakfast, where Missy sulked and wouldn't look at her. Shayna was staring at her scrambled eggs, thinking the word incubation. At the moment she realized the stone's warmth matched her body temperature exactly. And the kitchen's aqua blue seemed unusually bright. The stove, the refrigerator, the sink's basin. Colors leaped at her. Papa had a smile for them at breakfast, and smiles were rare since the strike. He'd gone to Mason Temple to hear the speech yesterday, and then he'd gone straight to bed. Did the Reverend give a speech, Papa? Missy said. Papa nodded, shoveling scrambled eggs in his mouth. He always ate in a hurry. He said he'd grown up poor with eight siblings, and if you didn't eat fast, you didn't eat. What'd he say? Same old, same old, Papa said, telling us what we already know. Reverend staying at the motel, Shayna, not the Holiday Inn like usual, Mama said, trying to sound casual so Papa wouldn't accuse her of worship. So the Baileys, they want everything right to show what a Negro business can provide. Mr. Bailey asked me to put in extra hours tonight, and I want you to come help me so I'll finish by a decent hour. Daddy was a trash collector who had never gone to college, and Aunt Priscilla thought it was scandalous that Mama was training Shayna to be a maid. Mama being a maid was one of the things they argued about. Mama said she didn't mind cleaning when it was for Negroes, and the Bailey's Motel was nicely kept up with modern decor and a colorful lighted neon sign that pointed up at the sky. The owners had named it after the song Sweet Lorraine. And Mama met so many people there, actors and musicians and writers, Papa complained that Mama acted like she needed to breathe the same air famous people breathed, or she didn't get enough oxygen. Mama was the maid supervisor and sometimes worked behind the desk, and all the famous people who stayed frequently knew her by name. So Mama was not going to leave her job at the Bailey's Motel anytime soon. One day, Shayna had passed a room and heard loud guitar licks and singing that stayed on her mind for weeks. Later, when the song Midnight Hour came on the radio and she knew it already, Mama only laughed and said she'd probably heard Wilson Pickett making it up through the walls. The motel was that kind of place, with music and laughing and Negroes dressed in ties and long skirts. Still, of course Shayna didn't want to go clean motel rooms after school. But Shayna noticed the dark splotches under Mama's eyes and her gingerly movement as she walked from the counter to the table with a coffee pot to refill Papa's mug. Mama often hissed quietly when she bent over or hummed a phrase from a freedom song to keep herself from groaning. While she'd lain curled on the ground during a sit-in in Nashville with Aunt Priscilla, a police officer had kicked them both. He'd kicked Mama's lower back, and she'd never felt right since. Having the stone helped Shayna see the polished black shoe as it swung down to kick her mother, with all the force the cop who wore it could muster. That was when Aunt Priscilla had left the country, and Mama had never forgiven her. Okay, Mama, Shayna said. I want to go too, Missy said. I want to meet him. Just a man, Papa said. Why make such a fuss over a regular man? He's no better than me or you. Should have seen him sweating at the podium. He's just as scared as anyone else. I only need Shayna, Missy, Mama said. Bad enough for us two to be out tonight. The curfew had been lifted Monday. 
but police still harassed Negroes they saw out at night. With the soldiers and the shooting, Memphis looked like the newscast from Vietnam. Larry Payne, who'd been shot by police at the Reverend's March last week, was only 16, three years older than Shana. Papa had gone to his funeral. Papa, can I go too? Missy said. Please? Papa shook his head. Just Shana. He turned his grave eyes up to Mama. And don't be out late. Shayna alone would help Mama work the Thursday night shift at the Bailey's Motel. Shayna's heart thumped with excitement as soon as she stepped outside to walk with Missy to school. Nothing was different. Rows of red brick homes, neighbors climbing into their cars or walking to the bus stop, dogs barking, piles of debris on the street. But it seemed new somehow. All of it. The stone under her arm seemed to vibrate as the expanse of the sky unfolded above her, feeding from sunlight through her skin. Blue, again. She felt like she could see through the sky. Tonight, she promised her stone, she would sleep outside. Shayna hadn't realized she'd been standing fixed on the street, staring at the sky until some time had passed. She looked around, remembering herself, and saw that Missy had kept walking without her across the street to the next block. The part of her that was still Shayna remembered that she had hurt her sister's feelings, and most of her still cared enough to run to catch up to her and try to say something to pull her out of her funk. She decided to talk about the things Missy was afraid of. I know why white folks don't treat us right, Shayna said. Despite herself, Missy was interested. The question why was on everyone's lips. Everyone knew how Echo Cole and Robert Walker had been crushed in the broken garbage truck, proof enough the conditions weren't fit for workers. And everyone, from Thomas Jefferson to President Johnson, had said all men were created equal. Everyone else knew what was right. They're afraid, Shayna said, simplifying it the best she could. They don't want to be under us like we're under them. That's stupid. Ain't nobody trying to be over them. She and Missy said ain't only when Mama wasn't within hearing, thrilling with the forbidden slang. We just don't want to be treated so mean, like dogs, worse than dogs. If it was the other way, Shayna said, we'd be the same. Nuh-uh, that's stupid. Yes, Shayna said, knowing, we would. Quit trying to act like you know everything. We wouldn't never be like that. I wouldn't. Shayna barely heard Missy, as if Missy were speaking from far below her, because she could see time unlayering, unfolding, and unwrapping and redoing of things that proved her right. That Missy's twin in that other time could be standing on the curb, shouting rage as white marchers passed quietly with signs, I am a man which could be reduced to, I am, which could be reduced to, I. Someone very much like Missy would cheer as police officers beat them and snatch their signs away, but she would never convince Missy of what she saw. The street stench was stronger today. The low, sour odor that had wrapped itself around the city was unmistakable, even in the morning cold. Shayna's nose was separating the scents into organic, 
metallic, and acidic, studying them with great interest, cataloging them. Or the stone was, anyway. Shayna could tell which scents were from a liquor store, and which were from a butcher shop, and which were from a house with a newborn, or an invalid who soiled diapers or sheets beyond cleaning. If not for Missy, Shayna would have stood stock still on the sidewalk with her nose turned up high to take in the smells. Stillness felt like Shayna's natural position now. To walk felt awkward. Although the part of her that was Shayna remembered movement fine. She more consciously monitored her movements now. Her steps, her breathing, her hands, her fingers. All fascinating. And she kept noticing a number everywhere. On mailboxes, on passing buses, on car license plates. 306. The number was important somehow. Stinks today, Missy said. Good. I hope nobody ever picks up the trash in this whole city. That's what they deserve. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. One of the first things Shayna learned about her stone was that it had a kind of unspoken language. If she squeezed her arm a certain way, or for a certain duration, she could communicate with it. This happened as Mrs. Harris called her to write on the chalkboard during math. That number 306 came up again. And although Shayna was right-handed, she'd foolishly chosen her right armpit to secure her stone. Wouldn't the stone fall as soon as she lifted her arm? She stammered and lied to say she didn't know how to solve the equation. But Mrs. Harris commanded her to the board. As it turned out, she shouldn't have worried. The stone burrowed so deeply in its cavern that it seemed to disappear, not moving at all when she raised her arm. Shayna perfected her language with it throughout the day. Short bursts for instant clarity, a long squeeze for energy when she felt sleepy. Carrying the stone did seem to drain her. And subtle shifts when she was curious about things that were about to happen. For instance, her sight blurred, and she thought she saw Assistant Principal Gandhi walk into the room to whisper in her teacher's ear. But his broad stomach did not actually appear in the doorway until seconds later. Like Mr. Spock always said on Star Trek, the stone was fascinating. In English, instead of copying vocabulary words from the chalkboard, Shayna began documenting her new knowledge of the stone's history. Landed 300 years ago as a piece of a larger mass shattered by contact with the outer atmosphere. Attracted to the Dogon region, never touched by human hands before the forests were cut down. Remembers everything it touches. 
has gathered volumes of data on ants, insects, small mammals, and primates. I am its first true human incubation. That powerful word again, I. Shayna stopped writing when her English teacher, Mrs. Hayward, wrapped a ruler on her desk and snatched away her notes. Shayna had a foreign impulse to take the notes back, to keep the stone's secrets. But her Shayna part remembered that she must not disrespect her teacher. Mrs. Hayward read the note silently with her forehead wrinkled in a frown. But she gave the paper back. The stone helped Shayna realize her teacher was actually amused, even impressed by Shayna's imagination. Write only what's on the board and stop wasting your time with silly stories, she said. And Shayna said, yes, ma'am, as she was expected. Then Mrs. Hayward turned to the class and asked for everyone's attention. Shayna only half listened, because she had resumed writing her notes. I will share my human data, and it will teach me how to see the layers. Layers wasn't the right word exactly, but Shayna was writing too quickly to be choosy. The notes were only meant to occupy her racing mind. She would not need notes. She would remember everything she learned from the stone. She would be the stone. Shayna, Mrs. Hayward scolded, and Shayna laid her pen down flat. Once Shayna's eyes looked up, Mrs. Hayward went on. Now, I've heard a rumor some of you may be planning to skip school again Friday, that there might be another march planned. If that's true, please raise your hand. No hands went up. Shayna sensed the hum of emotions around her. Defiance, shyness, secretiveness, sadness. If there were a march, many would go. But the only plan she had overheard from Daddy was that the Reverend would lead a march on Monday. Mrs. Hayward pursed her lips to a thin line. Now, you all listen to me she said in a funeral director's voice. I know everyone is excited, but you need to stay away from the marches now, here. Some of those teenagers feel too hopeless to think straight, and soldiers would just as soon shoot you as look at you, like this is a Tet Offensive here in Memphis. We don't want anyone else getting killed. We have a national spotlight now. We don't want the world to look at Memphis and say, look how they act. They cuss at police and set fires. Many students nodded obediently, but they were only wearing masks like Shayna, pretending she was the same Shayna and nothing more. She remembered what Papa had said about the Reverend being scared. He had reason to be scared. People only set fires and cussed out police when they were scared. Mrs. Hayward knew her students were keeping their true thoughts silent, so she only shook her head when the bell rang. Don't forget, we have a quiz, she said. See you Friday. But she would not see them Friday. Her quiz would not matter. Everyone in the class seemed to know it. But Shayna knew better than anyone. Papa had driven the Buick to work, and Missy had stayed at their cousin's house after school. So Shayna and Mama took the Mississippi Boulevard bus to the Patterson bus and walked the remaining blocks to the motel, past decaying storefronts and boarding houses. From some distance on Beale Street, Shayna could hear raucous ghosts from years past and future. Aretha Franklin's chain of fools poured from a passing car window, and Shayna nearly forgot how to walk because the music was startling. Deepest grief, 
but also a celebration. The stone beneath her armpit burned. Had the stone never heard music before? Shayna patted her crease where she was carrying the stone, and it was smaller now, shrinking. If she examined herself in her bathroom mirror later that night, if she ever looked in a mirror again, she would see a large dark spot, like the one on her palm, as the stone bled into her, bled into them. After today, there would be no I. We're just gonna tidy the rooms where the guests checked out late and get on home, a voice said from close by. Mama. Shayna waded out of the music's web and saw the street again, the sky's stunning light. Her mother's pearl-handled clutch purse with flower patterns swung beside her. Shayna didn't dare look up at Mama's face just then, because she might change her mind and fling the stone away. No one would miss her more than Mama. But Shayna could never let her stone go, because it would be like letting go of a part of herself. It was too late now. When they reached Mulberry Street, a National Guard truck rumbled by, driving slowly as if to avoid attention. The bayonets did not show like at the marches, but the truck screamed violence. A dozen soldiers watched, bored by the sight of them. They weren't much older than she was, glad to be on U.S. soil and not in a jungle. Shayna noticed 306, painted at the end of a long string of numbers on the side of the truck. The stoplight blurred at the crosswalk. Shayna saw the light change from red to green 2.6 seconds before her vision sharpened and the light actually changed. When they reached the motel at 5.30, the parking lot was filling up, as always, at the dinner hour. But most of the curtains were drawn. Shayna admired the shiny white Cadillac, and beside it, an older Dodge Royal with majestic green fins. The cars seemed fit for a king. A choir was rehearsing in one of the rooms nearby, muffled, dazzling. Mr. Bailey was on the phone and barely had time to speak when Mama peeked into the front office to say hello. He cupped his hand over his receiver. Second floor, he said, but don't bother 306. As an afterthought, he greeted Shayna. Hello, sweetheart. Hello, Mr. Bailey, she said, as she always did. No differently. The cart was waiting at the top of the stairs, with its mop and broom and bucket and cleansers. Mr. Bailey didn't like the cart exposed on the balcony, where anyone could see from the parking lot and street. Quickly, Mama pushed the cart past room 306. Laughter came from inside when a man said, I know your wife ain't gonna cook. She's too pretty. They went to a room two rooms past, curtains wide open to show the mess. Inside the room, they cleaned. Shayna was so distracted by the stone's explorations that Mama had to keep saying, hurry up, or go hang that up, or put that down, sounding more and more weary and annoyed. So Shayna forced herself to forget the things the stone was studying, the temperatures and textures and scents and layers. The stale odor of cigarettes helped Shayna fix herself in now as she emptied a heap of ashes and cigarette butts into her trash bag. She was still Shayna enough to want to enjoy her last night with Mama anyway. But tonight, when her family was sleeping, she and the stone would leave the house and find a quiet place to become Shayna Stone. They would find their position to analyze and observe this world and its layers, buried somewhere in darkness, 
perhaps under the ground. Shayna felt sadness again, but not as sharply as when she'd heard the music. She would miss her family, but not as much as she would have missed them yesterday, or even that morning. Why can't grown folks remember to flush the toilet? Mama called from the bathroom. The sound of flushing roared an echo against the wall. I don't know, Mama, Shayna made herself say. Talking aloud was a chore suddenly. The room was in such poor shape that cleaning it took nearly half an hour. Mama was fretting over how late they would get home as she rolled the cart back outside, where the daylight was waning in a furious orange fireball to the west. A ruckus raged in the parking lot below, the sound of milling and preparation. A few voices still sang, practicing spirituals in harmony. Behind them, a man on the balcony was laughing. The stone was especially intrigued by laughter. So Shayna turned and saw that the door to 306 yawned wide open. She knew the face of the man standing outside of the room near the railing. He was wearing a suit and tie, as if he were already dressed for a funeral. It was the reverend. His face was familiar from the news, even if she'd had no stone to tell her. The burning in her armpit flared, and Shayna allowed herself to see the layers that were always present, the different versions of now. She and her stone were witnesses, as her stone had witnessed for hundreds of years before she'd been born. Doc, a voice called from downstairs. You remember Ben? Ben Branch? The reverend grinned and waved to the parking lot below. Hey, how are you? Excitement lighted his face as he leaned over the railing. Tonight, be sure you play Precious Lord Take My Hand. Do a real pretty now. Downstairs, more laughter. I will, Doc, I will. As Shayna and her stone, the Shayna stone, studied the layers, the balcony blurred. Shayna stone heard the gunshot 3.2 seconds before the gunman down the street squeezed the trigger. They heard before Mrs. Bailey would hear it and fall, shocked to the point of having a stroke. They heard before anyone would duck for cover or point out where the fearsome sound had been born. The layers unfolded in a blizzard. It's cold tonight, another man called up. Don't y'all forget your coats. The gunshot had not yet come. Mrs. Bailey was on her feet, and the city wasn't burning, and the reverend was still smiling. Downstairs, a girl who sounded Missy's age giggled wildly. The part of Shayna that was still Shayna called out, Reverend! Her voice was loud. Mama's hand tightened on Shayna's shoulder, warning her to hush and not be a bother. The reverend's head moved one and three quarters of an inch to the right when he turned to her. His widening smile at her was cut short by the gunshot. As they remembered everything, Shayna Stone would never forget the look of resignation on the reverend's face when the window to room 306 shattered behind him, or how his shoulders hunched high as he waited for a second shot to come, or the way he crouched back against the wall like a child, his arms wrapped over his head amidst the shouting and screaming, or his panting voice as men scrambled from the room to see after him. I'm okay, I'm okay. Shana Stone could see the layers. Others would try to kill him. Violence was the human's tradition, 
and the end of one now led to another. The reverend had confessed to Daddy, and everyone else gathered at Mason Temple last night, that he knew his time had come. Daddy never told them at the breakfast table, but he'd cried himself to sleep after the speech. For the briefest instant, Shana Stone wondered if calling out to the reverend had been a mistake. Because their way, Shana Stone, was stillness. They were witnesses. But until her final shift, a piece of Shana Stone was only Shana. Human. And humans were never still. They were always in motion, even in their sleep. That was one of the first things the stone had learned about Shana. I love Tanana Rivdu's writing. I mean, she's mostly known for her horror fiction, and, and rightly so. She's a fantastic horror writer. But a lot of her fiction also draws inspiration from the civil rights movement. And, you know, her, her father, I've heard her mention this online, her father was actually an activist during that period, a freedom lawyer. And, you know, I, I can only imagine the kinds of stories he shared with her. I mean, I don't know for a fact that either of them was in, um, you know, Tennessee in 1968, but it's clear that when Tanani Reeve writes about that subject, um, she's speaking with some degree of authenticity. Right. Whether it's it's a combination of talent or or knowing the details from her father, you feel like you are right there. Yeah. She does a great job of, of putting us in the place and time in a way that, you know, I think few authors can probably pull off. Yeah. And the it was a gift to be at the Lorraine Hotel with Martin Luther King. Right. Um, right. I really felt like I was there. Yeah. And seeing it as Shana, as a 13-year-old girl, would see it. Yeah. And also, I want to make sure we mention Keeler Lee, the narrator, because I think she did such a fantastic job with the story. And it's worth noting that Keeler Lee was the narrator on the last three episodes of Stories to Keep You Up at Night. That wasn't by design. That was completely accidental. But I th- have no problem with it in retrospect because she's such a great talent. I love that I lo- because why I love this version of fiction is that we get to hear an actor, a reader, a person tell us this story. And it's hard to know it's the same person because she's embodying these three very different protagonists and these very different tones. And yeah. that's one of my favorite things. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good place to leave it. Christina, thanks as always for keeping the convo interesting. As always, Marco, it's my pleasure. And if you like our show, show us some love with a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform. And join us for our next episode, when we'll go headfirst into a problem many Americans can relate to. Until we meet again, pleasant nightmares. You're listening to Stories to Keep You Up at Night, created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.
Stories to Keep You Up at Night, episode 59, features Thursday Night Shift by Tanana Rivdu. It is produced by Marco Palmieri and Mary Osadolahi. Associate produced by Alexis Latshaw and executive produced by Molly Barton, Julian Yap, and Marcy Wiseman. Hosted by Marco Palmieri and Christina Teleska. Performed by Kaylor Lee. Audio produced by Tidef Studios. Additional editing by Angela Yee. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi, featuring drummer Andrew Niven and mixed by Max Kuttner. Cover art by Kendall Thomas. Find more shows like Stories to Keep You Up at Night by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.